Why You'll Never Be a Rapper, a memoir mixtape by Josh What's-His-Name Lefkowitz, forward by Fonte Coleman. You know the epilogue by James Hahn. While my relationship with Monica flourished, my lifelong affair with music ended in what felt like a breakup. I cursed its name, occasionally stalked it online, hoping I would only see bad things, and otherwise avoided seeing or hearing it as much as I could. And much like any split I ever had with an ex-girlfriend, I felt obligated to break all ties after realizing we simply weren't meant to be. On the surface, my life mostly felt like I had the song Oh How Happy by Shades of Blue playing in my head in a constant loop. As we'd walk down the Manhattan sidewalks holding hands, I'd have to refrain from skipping, though I had the urge. We were inseparable, and at the end of 2007, I moved into her small studio apartment in the Upper East Side, leaving behind my apartment in Brooklyn, my close friendship with Rue, and the memories of the last four and a half years. Living in Manhattan was a dream, and I was doing it with my dream girl. It wasn't a bad safety net to fall into after taking a leap of faith into common mandom. My friend Craig told me that I should contribute my ridiculous yet profound opinions on music to his Bombin' Magazine blog after I told him that Santi Gold was the Dana Dane to MIA's Slick Rick. I began blogging regularly and writing for his magazine, and I soon realized that I wasn't half bad at it. I'll be a writer, I proclaimed to Monica one day, still struggling with my identity and trying to find my footing creatively. I needed to get out what was in my head. At the same rickety computer desk where I composed the rant that became my soulmate catcher, I began what would become this book. And after eight or nine months of work, I created an early, disgruntled version of the story you've now nearly completed. That was 2008, and had the book come out, I could have called it Diary of a Mad Rapper, Why the Music Industry Sucks. I'm happy that version never saw the light of day. A few months went by and I decided that I was allowed to listen to music again. I'm not sure why, I just felt like it was time. It was as if I found value in a friendship with an ex, something I never did in my romantic life. I determined that it was time to grow up and realize that as much as I wanted commons I used to love her to mirror my life, hip-hop music was not actually a woman. If anything, it was more like a vitamin that I'd been taking incorrectly so all I felt was side effects. I stopped taking it cold turkey and missed out on the benefits that my soul direly needed to make real life more tolerable. I gravitated towards albums like Leave It All Behind by Fonte's Foreign Exchange, Seeing Sounds by N.E.R.D., and Kanye West's 808s and Heartbreaks. Like me, the music's infrastructure was hip-hop, but it sounded like what would happen if it grew up, evolved, and took an interest in instrumentation and songwriting that didn't involve bragging and battling imaginary rappers. Discovering these albums was like finding a glitch in the matrix. I could reintroduce myself to the emotion that hip-hop once gave me and enjoy the parts that I always loved without having to deal with aspects that I felt that I had matured beyond. I used these albums as my re-entry into being a music lover. And once the new foundation was laid, I found myself able to revisit hip-hop and all of its beautifully aggressive negativity. My life began to evolve naturally. I never made a lot of money, but I was earning a steady paycheck and benefits working in property management. And in the summer of 2009, Monica and I were married in a New York City-centric ceremony in a beautiful penthouse near Union Square. Life was looking up and I began getting acclimated into my new role as a husband. My relationship with Rue was unfortunately never the same. 
I wasn't mad at him, I just think that in some ways I associated him with feelings that I wanted to forget. So as time moved on, we grew apart. He came to my wedding and our brief interaction was mildly awkward. While on my honeymoon in Costa Rica, he sent me a very nice email letting me know that though being at the wedding felt somewhat strange, he was thrilled to be able to witness it. He spoke very maturely and optimistically about life and wished Monica and me the best. He said that he was sure that she and I were meant to be and that he knew it from the moment we met. He was, after all, the first person to say so. Rue continued his music industry quest for a few years without me, using everything that he had learned from our journey to further his own. He continued to manage Gifted for a few years, but was never able to get him beat placement on any large projects. He also invested his time into a young rapper from the Midwest, convinced that he would be the artist to catapult him into music industry stardom. And though he had, or in some cases lacked, exactly what was necessary to get signed by a major label, Rue could never quite get anyone to bite. The music industry was dying, major labels were folding, and if you didn't accomplish a substantial buzz on your own, then no A&R would risk their career in the name of giving you a shot. In my quest to find a voice as a writer, when having a blog was the thing to do, I created CoolMarriedGuy.com. It was a site aimed at men who hadn't lost their sense of self when they gained a spouse. I'd write op-ed pieces about relationships, and every month I'd interview a tattoo artist, clothing designer, personal trainer, music manager, or skate shop owner who had jumped the broom and was more or less just a grown-up version of their hip, younger selves. I thought I could make marriage cool again, and I figured I was creating something fresh and necessary for my age group, who was so largely affected by the divorce wave that swept our generation as kids. I still think the site was a great idea, but after two or three years of beating a dead horse, I was unable to monetize it. And the constant need for content began feeling like a monkey on my back. I cut and pasted from bigger sites as much as time would allow, but then shut it down. I thought the site's future success would catapult me into being a consultant of all things cool and a bit of a tastemaker. But now that my vehicle is dead, so are my dreams of it getting me to my destination. As the role of an actual cool married guy outlived the blog, I wondered, often worried about how my creative thirst would be quenched and who I'd become. I still felt like a creative, but with no outlet I felt somewhat unplugged from my true self. I fully committed to being a dedicated husband, but I still felt like I needed a thing to define myself. That was until my family expanded into three when my first son Ethan was born in June of 2011. It was at that moment that I realized who I was. And as Ethan grew up and my daughter Emmy came into the picture in May of 2014, I realized that in addition to being all in on the husband gig, I loved being a dad. I realized that I was happy just being and living for my family. This is a feeling that I've managed to maintain through heavy thought, reflection, and most recently, daily meditation. This is the same meditation, by the way, that's helped to rid me of the anxiety that once raged through my body like, as Busta Rhymes would say, a dungeon dragon. Rue never made it in the music industry. He moved back to North Carolina just like he always said he would. Enough time has elapsed to where the basis of our relationship is no longer clouded by frustrating recollections of the music industry. We speak occasionally, and when we do, it's like we never missed a day. Our inside jokes still make us laugh, and we still kind of look and dress alike, though we haven't discussed personal style in over a decade. And on occasion, when he's in New York, we find time to grab a meal. He almost always tells me that he's proud of me and how he longs to have a familial foundation like mine. I don't want to jinx it, but it sounds like he's well on his way. Asim let the music dreams go shortly before I did. 
He gained some notoriety with Dolo when they formed a collective called Nasty Fruit. But their rep never went beyond the local music scene and both of them retired to be family men. They're both employed, they're both married, and they both have kids. And though unfortunately Dolo and I haven't spoken, Asim and I share a friendship that's much like the one I have with Rue. Best friends that never have to communicate, yet can pick up where we left off at moment's notice. I feel very fortunate to have these friendships. Skaz still DJs for Kane, who as of late is more successful than ever. They're both married with kids, and by the looks of Kane's social media account, he owns a beautiful home in North Carolina and is having a blast raising a young doppelganger of a son. I miss Kane, and I know that one day our paths will cross again. We share great memories, and I know that our next interaction will be a pleasant one. I also hope his betting situation is intact without my assistance. I'm sure it's just fine. Bro Rab is currently on tour as Kid and Plays DJ. Most recently, they were a part of the I Love the 90s tour, a show put on by Universal Attractions where John Moskowitz works as a talent agent. And yes, they've met. He still gets plenty of gigs in North Carolina and is seen as a bit of a local legend. Kid and Plays Gettin' Funky was the record he used to audition for me at my mom's house back in ninth grade, which subsequently led to him buying DJ equipment and embarking on his career. He has yet to tell them that factoid, but talk about a full circle moment. And while we're on the topic of things going full circle, John, aka Jack Spade, the boy, now man, who introduced me to the music that shaped my entire life, has had a long career as an on-air personality and program director at several major radio stations in several markets across the country. I'm not sure how it happened. We mostly lost touch, but I never heard of him studying mass communications in college or pretending to DJ locally like his brother Brent. But I have to imagine that perhaps he's had this effect on other kids along the way, at least from afar. This project has afforded me not only a creative outlet, but also a reason to speak to Melvin more frequently. He taught me how to record over FaceTime, answered my countless questions along the way, and mixed the entire thing. Over the years, we hadn't spoken much, but occasionally he'd text me randomly on my birthday. He started taking Ginkgo Biloba about 15 years ago, and I swear that he's the memory of a bottlenose dolphin. He has a job outside of music, but still mixes and engineers for local talent and records as much as he can tolerate. But ultimately, none of it matters, because I know he's happy just being a dad. He always was, long before it was fashionable. I think there's an unspoken rule amongst my friends that if we were ever close, you probably won't speak to me often these days, but I love you like a sibling. Either that, or I'm just lucky enough to have friends that don't need constant contact. I guess I made a good enough impression on everyone not to have to be present in their lives, but still be welcomed with open arms when I do pop up. I'm just glad they don't remember me as being fucking miserable. In October 2016, after a few years of not speaking with Fonte, my most successful friend, I woke up at 6am with a text from him. Yo, Ms. Tigolo, is this still a good number for you? I didn't know why, but I knew that he wasn't just reaching out to verify my contact information. I could almost feel my intestines warming up and weaving themselves into intricate lanyard patterns, and I couldn't go back to sleep. Fonte had never texted me for anything other than to say hello, and somehow, I knew he had something interesting to talk about. I heard that he was writing for VH1's The Bricks, and was now a co-host on Questlove's Pandora radio show, Questlove Supreme. When I interviewed him for Cool Married Guy years ago, I told him I knew that one day everyone else would recognize how talented he was. I could see that my prediction was coming true. I texted him back straight away. He didn't respond, but it was far earlier than most adults were up on a Saturday, so I didn't expect the most rapid reply. 
I texted him again around 11.30 a.m. after admitting to Monica how wound up I was and why. Everything cool? I wrote. Still nothing. 30 minutes later, my phone rang and it was him. We hadn't spoken on the phone in years, so when I saw his name on the caller ID, I got anxious again. I was in the middle of feeding my kids lunch, but the conversation got so real, so quickly that I walked away, nearly leaving an avocado-smeared spoon in my daughter's mouth and confined myself to Ethan's room. He told me that the creators of mega-hit How I Met Your Mother had asked him to help them develop a pilot about some 40-something former rappers with families and desk jobs that decided to give music another go. Fonte let them know that if they were aiming to make it look authentic, they'd need to cast rappers rather than actors. Moving like a rapper is not something you can teach, he told them, and me. He said that he was up late, racking his brain and trying to figure out who would be perfect for the role, and I popped into his head. Me. The has-been, never-was, almost 40-year-old former rapper with a family and a desk job that never made it as far as he did. Of all the people he knew and spoke with regularly, he thought of me. What's his name? The kid from Durham, North Carolina, who questioned what my contemporaries thought of me. I was shocked and nearly fainted when he asked, is this something you'd be interested in? First of all, I'm beyond flattered, I told him, my teeth nearly chattering from anxiety. I don't have any idea how that would fit into my real life, but my answer is 100% absolutely yes. I didn't even think about it and just spoke from the heart, much in the way I did when I told Rue that I didn't want to make music anymore. This opportunity working out would be amazing in theory, but would almost inevitably complicate the hell out of my life. This opportunity working out then failing would probably make things really bad. But I knew the answer was yes wholeheartedly, even though I had let my rap dreams go and hadn't as much as thought about being famous in over a decade. The pilot never happened. The network executives passed on the idea and I never got to be on a sitcom playing myself. It was probably for the best, but the sheer novelty that I was his choice undid every question I had in my mind of whether or not the opinions that mattered thought I was good and instantly validated my entire career as a struggle rapper. I saw Fonte in April of 2017, the night before my 40th birthday. He bought me dinner and drinks and then invited me to a recording session for Questlove Supreme. I was introduced to Questlove who shook my hand like a gentleman and introduced himself as Amir, as well as the other co-hosts, one of them who serves as music director for Sesame Street. Bill, this is my man Josh, Fonte said. He used to be a rapper when we came up together in North Carolina. Remember when I was telling you about the guy I had in mind for the lead in that show? This is him. The lead? I said in my head. I hadn't thought about the show in six months other than one of the ten times I was thanking Fonte via text. I was over the moon when I thought that he considered me perfect for what I assumed was a supporting role. But the star? It was almost too much for me to process. Some rap fans consider Fonte a legend. Some even think he's top five dead or alive. He and I always seemed to share a mutual respect, but he never flat out told me that he liked my music or that he thought I was a great rapper. I guess now he didn't have to. And while we're on the topic of former members of Little Brother, just when I thought I was done having life experiences that would further alter the details of the story, I ran into Ninth Wonder at the Roots picnic last summer. I tried to avoid him, but he put his arm around my shoulder when I wasn't looking and said, What up, legend? I knew I owed it to myself to be honest with him. At first, I told him it was a long story. He told me he had nothing but time. I told him what happened in greater detail even than what I mentioned in this story, and he was apologetic. And though the details of our conversation don't matter, our interaction allowed me to move on from a 15-year grudge. 
What up, Ninth? In September of 2017, I reconnected with Loy from Jive on social media, who invited me to a Jive reunion in Soho. I had just finished revisiting memories of interning there, and I felt like I wanted to go, but more importantly, that I had to. I hadn't been at the now-defunct label in almost 20 years, and weirdly, I wanted to see what it would feel like to be around those people again. You know, the high and mighty, overly important gatekeepers of what I believed to be my destiny. How would I feel? How would they view me? What would it feel like to be at an industry event? I had to know. If you step into a colony of fire ants barefoot, you'll probably get stung. Attacking humans is not their goal, but more their natural instinct. Music industry people are a lot like fire ants. They don't set out to hurt unsigned artists, but if one tries to enter their colony, they'll face every imaginable reason why they won't make it and don't belong. And it feels a lot like a stink. I used to walk around barefoot in the music industry, but now I was wearing shoes. And it wasn't that I wanted to step on the ants, I just wanted to feel what it would be like to walk amongst them unscathed. I met Lloyd downtown at the Jive event. The place was small and hot, but frankly, that was the only discomfort I felt that night. I caught up with Loy and Kimmy, both of whom left the music industry many years ago. Fiola was there, as were a few other familiar faces from my days as an intern. Loy introduced me to old school rap legend and current day Uber DJ and photographer D-Nice, who asked enough of the right questions to lead me down a path of mentioning my book to him. He told me it sounded interesting and to take his number because he'd love to hear more about it. I hope he still does. And even though I was drinking brown liquor that night, I humbly accepted a shot of tequila from him. It was D-Nice for Christ's sakes. And then Jeff Sledge showed up, but this time, I didn't run for cover or think about whether I looked like a star. Lloyd pulled him aside to reintroduce me, told him about my book and that he was a character. I had thought about what would happen if I saw Jeff there. I decided that if the opportunity presented itself, I'd tell him who I was, our connection, and how hard Rue and I worked to impress him. And now, I had my chance. I reminded him that we were connected through Dave the Barber uptown. He said he remembered Dave, but I could tell he needed more context. I explained that I used to be a rapper and that Dave had passed on my demo many years ago, but he didn't remember. I reminded him that Rue and I met with him at Jive in the mid-2000s, but it still didn't jar his memory, so he asked what my rap name was. Oh yeah, from North Carolina. I remember now. Dave used to beat me in the head about you, always asking me, yo, what about what's his name? He remembered Rue and asked how he was doing. I gave him the update told him Rue was back in NC and working and doing well, but I could only focus on how great coming clean felt and how this time I didn't have to work to get the opportunity to speak with them. I wish I had more diverse terminology than full circle moment, but again, that's what this was. Jeff is the VP of a at Atlantic Records, one of the last remaining major labels, but I had no reason to impress or make an impact on him and it felt glorious. In fact, I had no reason to impress anyone at that party. I also didn't feel as though I had infiltrated the enemy's headquarters anymore. I felt like I was at a reunion for a company I used to intern for whose business just happened to be music, something I enjoy listening to and something I made for many years. Even when the ever-powerful former president of Jive, Barry Weiss, arrived, I paid it no mind. I thought that it was cool that he showed up, but I didn't want to pass him my demo. And that's when I knew I had finally moved past my pursuit of trying to be a rapper. I also wished I could have had the same conversation with Chris Lighty, but he committed suicide in 2012.
I decided that I was going to be a rapper when I was 12 years old. For the next 18 years, I lived every day believing that I would succeed in doing so. And until I was 30, I never imagined doing anything else with my life other than making music, until I didn't anymore. The transition from rapper to civilian was difficult at first. How could I confidently exist in the world knowing that I never actually accomplished what I worked my entire life for, and how would I reinvent myself? If I wasn't a rapper, then who was I? The first life lesson that I learned is that a person should never define themselves by their career or what they want to be when they grow up. Sure, we need people to sacrifice their time and lives to entertain us, figure out ways to make our lives easier and discover ways to keep us alive. But does it have to be you? And if most of us were destined to do things of that magnitude, would we ever recognize the ones who do become music legends, star athletes, app developers, or discover the cure for cancer? So don't worry if being groundbreaking at something isn't your path. Most people fall into that category. It's not a real metric or measure of human greatness. I would never tell someone not to follow their dreams. That is by no means the point. If you feel strongly that you should be doing something, then you're probably supposed to at least try it. If you succeed and it makes you happy, then you made the right choice. But if you fail or decide that you don't want to do it anymore, then the experience of trying probably brought you to where you were supposed to be next. So follow your dreams, but if it constantly feels like you're trying to put a square peg in a round hole, then it's probably the universe's way of telling you to stop. That was my takeaway. And when you make the right decisions, you'll see that it creates a path mostly made of layups, and the smooth sailing will outweigh the rough waters. Just never forget that the tidal waves and tsunamis will make you a skilled sailor. People get so caught up in the idea of never give up, but what if there's something happier on the other side? None of us are fortune tellers, so whether you call it God, or intuition, or the universe, learn to listen to it. There is no right answer, only what feels good. And that's what true success is, being happy. Not being able to look back and say, I did the thing I wanted to do, but to be genuinely happy regardless of how. My father once told me that the journey is the reward. That's the only line that has remained unchanged from the first draft of this book. It used to precede the sentence, perhaps one day I'll understand that sentiment, but that part is no longer true. The old Kanye West once said, everything I'm not made me everything I am. I find great value in both quotes and find the contrast of the authors both hilarious and comforting. Modern day Kanye commentary aside, of course. Monica and I are about to celebrate our 10th anniversary as husband and wife. Our relationship remains the core of my happiness, my success, and how I define myself. I'm a husband and a father of two, and though life can get stressful at times, I've never once felt like I needed to be someone else other than myself or that leaving my life would make me happier. That's the key. That's the intangible. That's success. Not doing something that other people think is cool, but doing what you think is cool and what makes you happy. This story has nothing to do with music. That was just my particular journey. Everybody knows that the music industry sucks and that the pursuit of fame is rough. There are hundreds of books written about it by far more qualified people than me. This story is about a quest, the effects of the paths we choose, what we can learn and how we can grow. So with that in mind, I'll leave you with this. Celebrate that you're from the South, but rap like you're from the North because that's the music you grew up listening to. Relish in the fact that the music you make doesn't fall in line with what's popular, but feels right to you. Don't sweat the fact that a and say you're talented, but never want to sign you because they don't necessarily think you're a star. Maybe deep down you only thought you wanted to be famous, but in reality, you would have hated it. 
And most of all, if it doesn't feel right to rap with a southern accent, then don't do it. Be you. Be unique. Be happy. And if any of that makes sense to you, then that's why you'll never be around. Never be around. Never be around.